Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to find ourselves together and to worship you. We pray that your spirit and your uh, angels will join us this morning, that our minds will be in light. We pray that your spirit will move upon the hearts and minds of those uh, in this community, that uh, the light about you may, may move forward through the adverse events we are struggling through. We pray that your spirit will lead us into a reconciliation and that these things will be worked out. And ultimately, as we do this, the focus will remain on you and your character. We pray also, Lord, that uh, you will be with Dennis Kiley as he is uh, undergoing chemo and radiation uh, treatment, that you will uh, heal him in accordance with your will and be with that family. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing our last lesson in our quarterly, Health and Healing, and the uh, title this week is The Tie That Binds. Somebody read the memory text for us, please. A new command I I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I just want to tell you that I, during this last several weeks, have experienced much love and support and encouragement from all of you and from our online class. Lots of emails from around the world uh, supporting what's happening here. And, and, I, and I just want to thank you all and give my love back. And this is, of course, what we're trying to build, a community where we actually care and support and encourage each other. Um, First two paragraphs, it says, It is very clear that being unloved, lonely, and isolated increases the likelihood of various risky behaviors. Disease and premature death from all causes rises by 200 to 500% or more in such individuals. Saddest of all, isolation deprives us of the joy of everyday life, the joy that comes from satisfying and fulfilling relationships. One study was conducted on 170 military wives receiving prenatal care at a military hospital. The research showed that women without emotional and psychological support had three times as many complications as those with adequate support. Anything that promotes a sense of isolation may lead to illness and suffering. That which promotes love and intimacy, connection and community, is healing and brings health. And no wonder, because as humans, we were meant to live in community and fellowship with one another. Thoughts about this? Do you all think it's true? Yeah. Um, There's two directions I want to go with this. Uh, Let's see. Let's go with the direction first of what happens to newborns if they are uh, raised or reared in a position in which they are not given affection, they're not held, they're not cuddled, they're neglected, basically. They're given food, but they're basically, you know, left to lay and lie. Failure to thrive. If they're given enough that they actually survive, what what happens? Do you all know? They're stunted in every way, socially, mentally, physically. He said stunted in every way. There's no question about it. The brain does not develop properly without the interaction, the tactile touch, the caressing, the holding, the rocking, the kissing, all those things that happen. The brain uh, doesn't develop properly. Uh, In study of of the effects of human infants of extreme deprivation in uh, particularly the emotional tactile caregiving aspects, was carried out on infants reared in Romanian orphanages. At the age of two years, these, these children did not show the usual variations of cortisol levels that were found in the home-reared children. And, uh, and also, they had um, deprivation or, or alterations in oxytocin vasopressin circuitry of the brain. And these are the cortisol circuitry is the circuitry that, that handles stress. 
And so kids that don't get the proper nurturing or neglected as infants in early, early childhood actually don't handle stress well. They're more anxious. They're more irritable. They're more moody. They have higher um, stress disorders, uh, both um, physiological and psychological problems. Additionally, they have impairments in bonding and trusting people because of the oxytocin vasopressin disruptions in the circuitry of the brain. Uh, all because in early infancy, they weren't loved. They weren't connected. They, and the brain doesn't, doesn't bond and bind in that way, develop in that way. Um, and I've got the references uh, for you, uh, the, American, the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences and the um, other references in here for you if you'd like to look that research up. Questions about, about that? Lots of uh, studies document this, and this is why it's important that we do connect with each other. Um, is there a test for this now? A test for this as far as an adult who has this problem? Sure. You could actually do uh, cortisol levels, and you can see cortisol response times in people. In children who are raised in uh, neglectful or abuseful or uh, deprivation circumstances have alterations where they don't actually react in the same way to stress. Uh, and if that happens, an inflammatory cascade is kicked off in the periphery. They have increasing inflammatory markers that lead to increasing metabolic illnesses, autoimmune disorders, increasing risk of cancer. A whole, the whole physiological life is worse because of early childhood neglect and abuse. All the way down the line. I got the simple part of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other aspect of this is, here as adults, here as adults now, have you ever been isolated? Have you ever been, and is there a difference between being alone and being lonely? Yes. Who would like to just help me understand that difference? What's the difference between being alone and being lonely? You can be lonely in a crowd. She said you can be lonely in a crowd. You can be alone by choice. Which is more damaging, being alone or being lonely? Well, you guys didn't hesitate on that at all. I guess all of us at some point in our life have struggled with feelings of loneliness, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, so we can be in that crowd, be connected, be with family even, and still feel alone. What is it that, uh, or feel, still feel lonely? What is it that you think, as you look inward or look at the people you know, causes a person who's around people to feel lonely? What is it that drives the loneliness? Lack of connection. What is it then? What is it that makes us feel connected? Love Similar beliefs, acceptance, love, interaction, interaction respect. respect, ability to bond with others. So there has to be a certain capacity. Some people, like autistic kids, have significant impairments in their ability to bond. But autistic kids, do you think autistic kids feel lonely? Have you known people that seem to struggle very, very in- intensely with feelings of loneliness? You know anybody like this? Are they people who like to be by themselves, or are they constantly working hard to try and form relationships, trying to connect? Both ways. Both ways? It says both ways. Um, I have a lot of patients who struggle with loneliness, and, and most of them who struggle with loneliness fear, fear being alone. They actually have a fear of it. See, we can be alone because we choose to be and not be afraid of it. But the people that I, I see in my practice that struggle with this actually are afraid. Ter- being alone terrifies them. And therefore, what, what, how do they react? Do you have any idea? Too clingy is number one. Yes, they're very clingy. And dependency. So they end, they end up going into any almost anybody who pays them attention. 
male, female, it doesn't matter. They're so needy of someone to care for them that they will clasp on to almost anyone. And the relationships are, are, are usually pretty unhealthy. Unhealthy. Um, I mean, yes? connection between their sense of self-worth and loneliness? Yes, absolutely. They, they derive a sense of worth by how they feel others feel towards them, rather than deriving a sense of worth from their inherent worth as a human being and child of God. Yeah, no, there's directly a connection there as well. What, what do you think is worse, being and living as a single adult or being married to the wrong person? <laughs> see, that wasn't hard for you all to figure out. Do you know people who struggle with loneliness don't see that? They have in their mind that it is the worst thing, the worst possible thing in the world would to be, was to be single or to live alone. That is way worse. So, so they often and frequently marry people that they're completely ill-suited to be with, just to have somebody to be with, and they often end up in abusive and exploitive and, and relationships in which they're controlled and dominated. Because, and they stay because they're more terrified of being alone than they are of being beaten on a regular, regular basis. And so one of the truths that have to come to bear is, and have people to see, which is worse, to, to, be, to live as a single adult in America or to live in a home in which you're beaten regularly? I mean, that's not hard for you, but it's hard for some people because they're so terrified of being alone. Sunday's lesson, the dark section, states, How does the fact that Jesus himself is God help us understand better what it means to have been made in his image? How does knowing about Jesus help us understand the kind of characters our first parents had at creation? Thoughts about that? What characters did our first parents have at creation? Well, they were sinless. Sinless. Okay. They were created to love each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It says, Evidence Home, page 26, Not a shadow interposed between them and their creator. They knew God as their beneficent Father. And in all things, their will was conformed to the will of God. And God's character was reflected in the character of Adam. His glory was revealed in the object, every object of nature. So we have that Adam was created to reflect the character of God. So first question is, um, what's God's character? Love. Love. So Adam is going to reflect that character. And the lesson states nicely, if you read down in the lesson, that this is from the lesson, the unselfish love and concern for others was marked with, that marked Jesus' life also must have been reflected to some degree in Adam and Eve before the fall, who were from creation made in the image of God. I think that's, that's well stated. What happened? Distrusting God. Distrusting God. Um, so the question, what was God's purpose or design for making mankind in his image with a character, uh, this unique creation, male, female, come together in unity, give of themselves to bring forth new creation, love. Uh, what was his design? What was his goal? And why did he put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? What was he trying to accomplish? Yes. To show relationship, to show what kind of a relationship he wanted with us. To show relationship? Other thoughts? To reveal his love. To others. To re- ah, to reveal his love to other beings. You mean there were people out in the universe watching? There were other beings. Other beings, that's what I mean, yeah. Intelligent beings. Okay. The, the tree was there, too, to show that it's a constant choice. 
to have a relationship with God. If the tree wasn't there, it wouldn't have been a choice. It would not have been a choice other than having a relationship with him. I like that. The tree was there for part of that choice. Um, What did God warn them would happen um, if they ate from the tree? And this is out of Genesis 2, 17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And how do you hear that warning? How do you hear it? What is he telling them? It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Do you hear it as a threat? Um, Did God say, if you eat, I will be forced in order to be just to execute you? Do you know that some people are articulating this is what he was saying? Yes. It's like a parent telling a child, listen, don't do this. Well, let's, let's, let's see if this get lets any light and see, because we, there, there's a controversy over God's character, and it's raging in our church right now. Uh, this is out of a book called Conflict and Courage. See if this helps our position or makes it harder, or how would you explain this? This is our first parents, though created innocent and holy, were not placed beyond the possibility of wrongdoing. They were to enjoy communion with God and with holy angels, but before they could be rendered eternally secure, their loyalty must be tested. At the very beginning of man's existence, a check was placed upon the desire for self-indulgence, the fatal passion that lay at the foundation of Satan's fall. The tree of knowledge, which stood near the tree of life in the midst of the garden, was to be a test of obedience, faith, and love of our first parents. While permitted to eat freely of every other tree, they were forbidden to taste of this on pain of death. They were also to be exposed to the temptations of Satan, but if they endured the trial, they would finally be placed beyond his power to enjoy perpetual favor with God. Do you like how that's worded? See, people that hold another view, does this lend itself to that interpretation? And I want to point out a process to you guys. If you've been reading the the follow-up threads uh, on the article I put on Spectrum, it's happening constantly on there who oppose us. And that is... Selective use of, of, of inspiration. Uh, instead of bringing all the various parts together and making and requiring as an element before we draw a conclusion that all the pieces of inspiration, as far as our brain can, must be assimilated to be in harmony. Does that make sense? And so this, this on the surface, it's giving us some ideas, but it's not necessarily exactly clear. Maybe we should read on the very next paragraph. But even before we read on, we could ask this question. On the pain of death, does that mean God would have to inflict death if they disobey? Could it mean that if they would disobey, they would deviate from the basis of life, and the only result is death? If God had put them on the top of the Empire State Building and said, you are forbidden to jump off on the pain of death, would that be confusing to us? Would we think that God is threatening them? You see, how is it that people hear God speaking in the Garden of Eden and don't recognize that same reality is at work. There's a law upon which life is built, and if they step off, then the result is death. So, next, very next paragraph, see if it's cleared up. God might have created mankind without the power to transgress his law. He might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit. But in that case, man would have been not a free moral agent, but a mere automaton, a robot. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary, but forced. There could have been no development of character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charge 
of God's arbitrary rule. Wow, does that actually just help flush out what she was saying in the paragraph before? In the previous paragraph, it's often misstated or misunderstood as an arbitrary test of obedience. Right. And she clarifies right here that he did this because it was not arbitrary. See, Adam and Eve had to weigh for themselves as free beings the allegations being made, and then they had to make a choice. And it was by making a choice that we fire neural circuits. And when we fire those neural circuits, it changes brain wiring. And this is how we develop character, by the choices we make. And if they never make a choice, they don't grow. They don't mature. Yes? Uh, when there was war in heaven, Satan was defeated and kicked out. I assume he was sent to the earth. But was he allowed to go through the whole universe and tempt them like he did here on earth? This is a great question. He says, when Satan was cast out, and it actually came up in the thread, it, I'm going to tell you, read those responses, and you'll see the lack of, um, well, as a Christian nation, we're a Christian nation of biblical illiterates. In other words, people don't read the Bible, they don't have the database. And as you read this thread, there's so much actual inspired evidence that people just don't even want to read, and so because they don't have that data, then they come up with these conclusions. One of the points somebody made was this question you asked right there, and if they would have read a little widely, they would have already had the answer. And so, let's answer this question. After Satan fell, and he was cast out of heaven, Revelation chapter um, four, uh, chapter 12, war in heaven, 12-7. There's war in heaven, and the war, the Greek word war is polemo, from which we get politics. This was not a war of might or power. How do we, we, though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with, what? You looked that up. That is not correct. Sorry. Polemo? Is not the Greek word? The word politics comes from polos. and people. It's a city. Polemo is the word for war. You're right, but it's not a different word. Hmm. Thanks for clarifying that for me. I appreciate that. I'm pretty sure I've checked that myself, and I think one of the interpretations is political, but I will double-check. And... Um, but either way, if you look at the evidence of the war, was the war in heaven physical? Was the war a war of Satan standing up and saying, I have more might and more power, I'm challenging God to an arm wrestling contest to prove that I can physically defeat him? No, it was never a war of might and power. So what kind of war was it? You put the scripture, for though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? Every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So, even if that word doesn't mean it, the reality of the war as described is a political war. It's a war over words, ideas, and God's trustworthiness. So, yes? Doesn't uh, polemo, isn't that the basis for our word polemics? Okay. Which basically, I think it's a contest or dealing with ideology. Okay. Yeah. I'm not a Greek expert. Does anybody know the answer to that? Polemo is the word for polemics, which then would be a word of war ideas, which still lends itself, in my mind, to more of a political war than a physical war. So, at this warfare, what happened when Christ, what, what happened when he was cast out? And why do you think he was cast out? Was the warfare, it was Satan's allegations in heaven that he was equal with God? Who did he allege equality with? Christ. Okay. This is why Christ, which member of the Godhead is it that all things were created through? Christ. And this is one of the reasons why, because Christ was distinguishing himself from Lucifer as a being that is divine rather than a being that is created as Lucifer was. And so I do believe that Lucifer was cast out to earth 
And I think at that time, reading the history, this is my view of it, putting all the pieces together, that Earth at that time was a black hole in space in the corner of the Milky Way. Read Genesis chapter 1. It was void without form. Deep darkness covered the face of the deep and a great abyss. It was a black, deep hole. Uh, but the rest of the universe was already here because Job chapter 38 tells us that the sons of God sang together for joy when God created the earth. So other intelligent beings were already in the universe when God created this planet. And I think Lucifer was, was, was sent here and God said, okay, you're claiming equality with Christ. Go to earth, show us what you can do. There's nothing there. Do something with it. He couldn't do anything. And then Christ comes and says, let there be light. The black hole dissipates. Light from space is traveling. Days four, let the sun, moon, earth, I mean, sun, moon, and stars, Venus, Mercury, Mars, our solar system, uh, be formed out of the mass that was at the center of the black hole. And then, so we see God creating. Satan, though, is still free, because we get in the book of Job. Here he is, presenting himself in heaven. Sons of God come to present in heaven. Satan's popping right up there in this meeting, making allegations still about God. So we have Satan wandering. And then Christ says something in the New Testament. Now is the prince of this world will be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. Remember this quote? So his lifting up will cast out the devil and draw all unto him. Putting that together with the spirit of prophecy, uh, Ellen White says that at the crucifixion of Christ, that Lucifer revealed himself as a murderer and lost all sympathy with the intelligent beings in heaven. And at that point, his movements were restricted to the earth. Now... But let me, let me, let me pull up why, why it's restricted. Is it restricted to earth after that point because God now uses might and power to put like a force energy shield around earth and he's like, can't get out of earth because he's like this energy shield force power held here? No. It's a polemic. It is a war of ideas. And after the cross, there was not one intelligent mind in the rest of the universe that would give Lucifer the time of day. It's like, talk to the hand, not listen to you anymore. All minds have been closed to Lucifer. That's why his freedom was restricted to earth, because only on earth would people still listen to Lucifer and Satan and his lies. And it was the evidence of what Christ did that, that, that restricted him here. Prior to that, he still had sympathy out there. He was still able to get people to wonder about what he was doing. But after the cross, only on earth now are people still confused about God and about Christ. Does that make sense? Yes, Russell. This is also why you see Revelation. says, Rejoice, you heavens. But woe to the earth, because the devil uh, is cast down. Cast down. Yeah. Because the heavens were rejoicing. They were having to listen to this nonsense. Yep. Exactly right. I think that's a great point. Is that the reason why the cross? One of the reasons for the cross, sure. And it tells us in Colossians that um, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. All things in heaven and earth. So heavenly things were being reconciled. When Satan started his war in heaven and he wanted to set himself up in God's temple, enthroned in heaven, think this through. Did Satan want to be enthroned in a building in heaven? Or did he want to be enthroned in the spirit temples, the one most loved, adored, and worshipped even? So it was here that he was trying to enthrone himself into the minds and hearts of intelligent beings. And this is how Christ cast him out, by the revelation of ultimate truth about himself uh, in, in heaven. Let's go on to, to read here about God made, this is uh, next paragraph in the same uh, um, conflict and courage. God made man upright. He gave him noble traits of character with no bias toward evil. He endowed him with high intellectual powers and presented before him the strongest possible inducements to be true to his allegiance. Obedience, perfect and perpetual, was the condition of eternal happiness. On this condition, he was to have access to the tree of life. How do you hear that? Obedience, 
perfect and perpetual was the condition of happiness, eternal happiness. How do you hear that? Being in harmony with God's law of love that sustains us, yeah. brings us goodness in our lives. The law of love, remember we've gone over before, is that principle of giving, the design template for life. And the metaphor, I think, that works helps us see it so clearly is the metaphor of breathing. And if I were to say, breathing, um, perfect and perpetual, keeps you healthy. You would go, oh, that makes sense. Uh, tie a plastic bag over my head and break the law of respiration, I'm not going to be healthy or happy. Right? And if you think about this through, through the atonement and what Christ had to tr- do, when we step out of, of uh, harmony with the law upon which our life is designed to operate, as God designed it, We tie a plastic bag over our head in rebellion to hoard and selfishly keep all of our carbon dioxide. Uh, If a substitute comes and ties a plastic bag over his head to pay our legal penalty and earn us pardon, how does that help us if we have a plastic bag still tied over our head? Do you see a problem? Now, I'm not suggesting Christ was not our substitute. He was. We've explained this over and over again. But he was our substitute for the purpose of getting the bag off our head. Is our substitute for the purpose of getting us back in harmony with the very basis upon which life is designed to operate. That's what he came to do. And then one other place she says um, in Confrontation, page 12, The Lord placed man upon probation that he might form a character of steadfast integrity for his own happiness and for the glory of his creator. He endowed Adam with powers of mind superior to any other creature that he had made. His mental powers were but a little lower than the angels. He could become familiar with the sublimity and glory of nature and understand the character of the Heavenly Father in his created works. Amid the glories of Eden, everything that his eye rested upon testified of his Father's love and infinite power. And so again, Adam was was created perfect for the purpose of creating a character by healthy choices and understanding of the realities around him. What was Satan's allegation as to why death would come if somebody broke the law? The rule giver would be upset and have to punish you. Yeah, and I want to go through, and, I, and this, is, this is part of our, our critical reasoning and learning how to reason through uh, things that are stated. And I want you to notice the progression of thought. Again, the other view has to rest on limited uh, inspiration rather than reading the whole thing. So Desire of Ages, page 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. When, a, when, when men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exulted. It was proved, he declared, that the law could not be obeyed. Man could not be forgiven. Because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must be shut out for, forever shut out from God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy towards the sinner. Now, what, what kind of a God do you get portrayed here by Satan's allegations? A severe God? A punitive God? An arbitrary God? A God who's required to enforce? Do you get a sense that, the, that Satan is portraying God as a natural law? And if you break it, it damages you and deviates you from the course of, of life and result. Do you get that picture from this description? No. Let's read the next paragraph. Very next paragraph. Why can man be saved and Satan can't be? Any thoughts on that? He said Satan has committed the unpardonable sin. What would the unpardonable sin be? No longer wanting. Persisting in living in violation of God's law of love so long that you destroy the very capacity to respond. That you don't recognize truth when it stands before you and you don't like love when you're being loved. 
that your very faculties for recognizing, responding to love and truth are gone. And that's what happens to us when we persist in sin. We actually sear the conscience. We warp the reason. We cloud the mind. And over time, and I'm sure you've met people that you can present the most basic truth to them, and they can't comprehend it. They can't see it. They twist it. Have you not seen this? Very next um, paragraph. It says, but even as a sinner, man was in a different position than that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in light of God's glory to him, as to no other created being was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in the knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. What do you think about that? What is it that severs our connection with God? What is it that if you're married would cause you to break your relationship with your spouse? Broken trust. And what is it that can break trust besides an actual breach of trust? Lies. Exactly. You believe lies about your spouse, you don't want to be with them anymore. So, Satan at some point solidified his character in selfishness to the point that he could not be changed. And the love of God, and this is why the final message of mercy is the light in the world for Christ's coming. It's truth about God's character of love. So let's listen to the next paragraph. Because we want to talk about justice. You notice how we get criticized for having a view that is a God of love without justice. They try to allege that we don't believe in justice. Because what does justice look like to the other side? Punitive, inflicted pain and suffering by God at his hand. And it puts God in the role of becoming executioner and death comes out from God rather than the wages of sin is death, or sin when full grown brings forth death. This is the how, so, so if we don't have God in the role of killing, destroying, maiming, wounding, inflicting torture, then they say we don't have a just God. Let's, let's hear what justice is. Yeah. Well, the other day, this is a theologian who said, well, can you really, is there such a thing as mercy if there's not justice? <laughs> such a thing as mercy if there's not justice. You know, well, I said, well, can you have love without hate? Of course you can. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. But it's infected some Christian thought, hasn't it? We believe that there is a heaven, and there doesn't have to be a hell forever. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Well said. It says, Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men. But mercy does not set aside justice. Here's the word. Mercy does not set aside justice. The law reveals the attributes of God's character, and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. God does not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for the man's redemption. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Let's break there because we're going to come to the next paragraph. Um, but think this through. What did it say? Mercy does not set aside justice. The law reveals the attributes of God. The law cannot be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. What law? First question, what law can't be changed? And why can the law of love not be changed to meet man in his fallen condition? Because first off, it's who God is. It's his nature and character. And secondly, when the God of love 
begins to create, and it says all things in heaven and earth are held together in, uh, in God, right? All things are held together by him and for him. So it's all operating upon what? Love. This is the basis upon life. You can't change it. So it would be very much like someone tying that plastic bag over their head, and as they got that bag over their head, can we change the law to meet them in their circumstance? No, we can't change the law. As long as they got the plastic bag over their head, they're going to die. You have to change their, their situation. You have to change them, but you can't change the law. We are dead in trespass and sin, it says. Our hearts are self-centered. We don't naturally operate on other-centered love perfectly as God designed. So we can't change the law that life is built upon to meet us in this state. So Christ came instead to change humankind back in harmony with the law. And so here's the very next words. After she says, Mercy is not set aside justice. The law cannot be changed to meet us. That he sacrificed himself in Christ to reconcile us to himself, the world to himself. The very next words. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. A perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What does God's holy law claim? It would be like the law of respiration requires breathing. Okay, okay. The law of righteousness. Okay, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through. What do you think we get remission of sins that are passed through? Through a legal payment made to a to, to the law or to God? No. Listen to this. Remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What's that sound like? Forbearance of God. Mercy. Forgiveness. Yes. More than this, Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer of Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Is it not just beautiful? Do you see how it all just flows together harmoniously? Yes. This is why, uh, if you look at why everything you're teaching here matters, if you follow the legal penal model, then you say the sinner's prayer and then you're okay and you don't have to do anything after that. But if you believe that God's justice upholds the law, then your mind and character have to be changed to be harmonious. But think it even through further. If, even if you take the... Well, we believe in the, in the penal model that God's justice upholds the law. But in that model, the law is something we have to obey, something we have to work for, something we stand scrutinized by and under and condemned by. Okay, In the other model, the law is something rebuilt in us by the working of the Holy Spirit with our cooperation, to be sure. It's a cooperative. We trust him and we choose to follow as he leads, but the Holy Spirit is rebuilding, writing the law on the heart and mind. And it's taken down off the wall as something that we have to be uh, diagnosed by and put in the heart as something that cures and transforms and heals us. Yes. You say you are put back in perfect relationship with love, um, but sort of perfect character with love. In other words, you have to have the relationship in order to sure. the character. The character. If you don't know God, you can't build that character. And there's subtle. Yes, I agree completely with that. Um, and I think this other view. Yes, absolutely. This is why. What is it that brings us security in our salvation? Is it our ability to obey the law? No. No. When is a person considered righteous by God? As soon as you have a relationship with him. As soon as you're newborn, as soon as you have a relationship, what's another way to say that? When we trust him. 
Because as soon as we genuinely trust God, what happens internal to us? We open. Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens the door, I will come in and stop with him. Him with me. What door is he knocking on? Hearts and minds. Now he'll knock and knock and knock until we become deaf. And then he'll stop knocking when we can no longer hear his knock. Isn't that true? The truth is always there, shining. We just are blind to it, yes. I wonder how that first quote you read, it is so mixed. I mean, it says that justice and mercy were incompatible. It said Satan. How does that, how does the church not understand that? Well, they say... That that mercy... It can't be compatible with justice. And we hear the same thing preached from pulpit. That's, that, well, that's no, they're alleging that that's what we teach. We teach that God is merciful, but he has no justice because he won't kill the wicked in the end. And so he has mercy to save, sent Christ, executed Christ in our place in mercy. It was not in order to influence the Father. It was at the Father's will that this be done. So it wasn't to influence God. It was fulfilling God's will that Christ be executed in our place and then make our legal payment so that then we could take that legal pardon and be saved. And those who don't, though, God is just, and then we'll execute and torture them in the end. And since we don't present that way, we have mercy. God is merciful and wants to save us, but he won't kill and torture people in the end, so they, they allege that we don't have justice. Correct. Yeah. So, but this is the whole point I'm making, if you've been reading the, the thread, that God's justice, the justice of love, is not an injustice of infliction. Correct. The justice of love, if your spouse tells you they're leaving you, the spouse tells you they're leaving you, and you love them. You don't just turn your back and say, fine, go out the door, bye-bye. No, you try to convince them. You try to persuade them. You, you implore them. You have envoys come. You give gifts. You do everything you can to win them back. But if they insist on leaving you, what's the only loving action you can take? What's the only just action you can take? Let them go. And the, and the, and the wrath of, of, of love is the wrath of freedom, setting one free to reap. And you see this in, in um, Hosea. Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. Or in Revelation, I'm going to get to you, Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1, talking about the four angels holding back the four winds of the earth, and it says an angel came from the east to the angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. And the message came, hold, hold, hold. Now, how do you read their power to harm the land or the sea? Are they inflicting? Because I can tell you, the other side are saying that God sends his angels with divine power from heaven to inflict the last plagues and to torture people on earth. But the, the scripture says that the, God's angels are holding, 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 and they've been given power to harm the land and the sea. But the message comes to hold back the winds of strife. So if they're holding back winds of strife, how is their power to harm? To go and inflict it themselves or to remove their restraint off of enemy forces? I thought it said they were given the power to... Harm. harm. Yes. How do they harm? They're holding off that harm. Yeah, and what, so what are they holding back? They're holding back the forces of evil. Ellen White says, I saw that the punishments from God do not come out from him as people think. They come out from him in this way. For those who insist on rebelling against him, those who resist on going their own way, despite all efforts to, to win them back, all, all signs of mercy and entreaties to, to love them, he finally does not tell his angels to protect and sets them free. And Satan is unleashed. And he has power over land and sea. And great calamities will be seen. 
by Satan's power because he is angry and wrathful. We're going to see much more of it to come. Tim, I think what helped me with this is that when you look at we have a misinterpretation of what justice is. In other words, we come with baggage with what that word means. If you look at the Greek, like in Romans where it talks about uh, chapter 3, 25 and 26, those verses, and look at what the word is, it can take the meaning of righteousness. Absolutely. So when you take it in that context, it's changed the way that I look at when I read these texts because that can be coded from what you're reading there. Excellent. Thank you so much. And this comes from Latin. The Latin language, you know, we get our legal justice system language out of the Latin language. And uh, much of the, uh, uh, the, the New Testament and the scriptures have a Latin base to it, like the word justice. But you're right, the Greek word dikaio or dikasune uh, is translated both righteous and, righteous, righteousness and justice. Uh, or just. And so it just means to do right or the right thing. And so what is the right thing of a God of love to do for those who insist on, on not wanting to have any part with him? And when the life giver lets go, what happens? You die because you can't draw life anymore. And you see if you read the, the lack of logic in some of these people that oppose us, there's one that says, well, when the life giver lets go, well, then what happens? Are they killing each other? Is Satan killing them? No. If the life giver lets go, guess what? <laughs> you have no life. <laughs> because your life comes from him. <laughs> And why does the life giver let go? Because we insist on being separate from him. Monday's lesson, Romans 14.7, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. What do you think that means? What is the important principle there? So what do you do to those people who say, Hey, it's my body. I ain't hurting anybody but me. I can drink, I can smoke, I can you know, play these weird video games, I can do all this kind of stuff because I'm not hurting anybody but me. What do you say to those folks? Is it true? Can you give some examples for those who don't see it? How would you help somebody who doesn't understand this understand that, that, that you're not just hurting yourself? Yes? A little child has both parents consuming something that is detrimental to their health and they have them in that environment where they're breathing that, that detriment. So the, par- the children are harmed by the parents' abuse of the parent. Yeah, would, would we all agree with that? How about if you're not a parent, though? You're just a teenager. You got no kids. How about health system costs? Well, how about ca- parents in this room? Come on. If your teenager is mistreating themselves, can they do that without affecting you? Are you not injured by that? Of course you are. Of course you are. We can't mistreat ourselves without hurting those around us. And so this is a great fallacy. Um, The root to sin is selfishness, as we've all discussed. Have we, as a society, become so selfish that we've lost the ability to empathize with other people? Yes. To appreciate how interconnected we all are. We don't feel another's pain or concern for anyone anymore. 2007 study of 16,475 college students who completed an evaluation called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. Everybody know whose narcissist was? Narcissist came down, a Greek mythological figure came down, looked into a pool of water, saw his reflection in the pool of water, fell in love with himself. Never wanted to leave looking at himself in the pool of water. A very self-absorbed, self-centered, organizational style of one's personality, a narcissistic personality. Between 1982 and 2006, 
They found that the measures of narcissism have risen steadily over 25 years covered by the study. By 2006, two-thirds of the stu- college students had above-average scores on narcissism, which was 30% higher than it was in 1982. Does that surprise anyone? Part of it has to do with this twisted, liberal, left-wing parenting style that says, don't ever let your kids feel like they're a failure. Don't criticize them. Always tell them that they're, everything's okay. You're wonderful. This is what the study said, actually. You know, you, everybody, you're good. Everybody loves you. No. Holding kids accountable. Holding kids accountable so that they learn from their mistakes rather than telling them everything they do is wonderful helps them have a more realistic sense of self. And then we move them from, uh, from this position of, oh, I can't do anything right, which is often what they'll do, to, hey, uh, you know what? I'm not perfect, but I'm capable of growing and learning. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to develop. So it's a developmental pathway we're on. Narcissists are more likely to have romantic relationships that are short-lived. In other words, they don't stay in relationships long because they can't sustain them. Uh, at risk for infidelity, they cheat more often. Lack emotional warmth, exhibits game-playing and dishonesty in relationships, over-controlling and violent and aggressive behavior. Thoughts about that? I see it in my practice all the time. All the time. That's what you see. All right, Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. All humanity is related through our common ancestry. We're related, too, through the love that God has for all of us. Everyone may be redeemed by Christ's precious blood because God wants no one to be lost. Thoughts? What does it mean? How do you explain it? Somebody is not a Christian. You're working with a coworker who's Muslim. You're working with a coworker who's Hindu. You're working with a coworker who is is uh, is not raised uh, in any type of religion. They're agnostic, and uh, they hear this. Hey, you know, I heard somebody say that that we're saved by the Christ's precious blood. What does that mean? What would you say? God is love. God is love. Well, okay. How does His blood save me? She says, saved by his life, his teachings, his actions. Other thoughts? How do you explain it? Should we be able to explain it? It is blood in his flesh and his spirit. His words are spirit. So we're saved by what he teaches us. She says he's saved by, we're saved by what he teaches us. We should be revealing it in our personhood, in our character, in the way we, the way we deal with our co-workers, the way we deal with our enemies. Blood is a metaphor, isn't it? It is not literal. Is it literal red corpuscles we're saved by? No. So the first thing you say is, that's just a metaphor. That's just a figure of speech. Like if i got a frog in my throat. Don't take it literal. I'm not eating amphibians. Okay? It's, it's a metaphor. So the blood represents life. So we are saved by the precious life of Christ. How did that happen? And then what I do is I tell people about the two antagonistic powers. God, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. We're giving. This is the principle of life, and I described that to them. And then I said, but there's an antagonistic power that we all are born with and infected with. And that antagonistic power is? Narcissism. Narcissism would be a way to say it. Survival of the fittest. That me first, got to watch out for number one. Uh, you know, dog-eat-dog kind of mentality that we all fight with. Yeah, that is uh, that antagonistic power. Love others so much, I'll give my life. Love myself so much, I'll take your life. And I explain this. People get that. They see it real quick. And I say, Christ came to destroy in humanity this desire to hurt others to protect self and to restore in humanity 
the love for God and love for others, that we would give ourselves. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. Or in Revelation, describing those ready to meet him, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That, that desire to protect self has been replaced with love for others. So I explain that. That's what I explain. But you know what? There's another explanation. And I'm going to tell you, when I explain this to people, these agnostics, these people who, who don't, are not Christian, they love it. It resonates. That makes sense. I've never heard it that way before. And it, it really has power. This other thing, though. Well, God has a law. It was broken. And God is the great cosmic enforcer. In order to be just, he has to inflict penalties, or else if there's not penalties, then, then he's not a just God. And we, we, of course, would want a just God running the universe. And so he has to execute those who have broken his law. But he loved us. He didn't want to execute us, so he sent his son. And his son took our place and was executed in our place. And, and the blood is representat- representative of the, the blood payment he made to, to pay the legal debt that we have. And if you accept that blood payment, then you can have pardon next to your name in heaven. That is not nearly as appealing and has no power. Yes. And in Catholicism, and uh, Richard Hilder was with me in the Orthodox Church of England, if you drink the blood, you're saved, and that's all you have to do. Very simple religion. It's very easy. Just do that. It, in the third paragraph, it says. No one hates his or her own body. All parts of the body interact to function effectively. If one part of the body suffers, all, fun- all functions are affected. The closer we are to another, the more readily and powerfully we feel the impact of their problems. Well, the first thing I said is, really? I have all kinds of patients who hate their body. Have you heard of body dysmorphic disorder? They hate their body. I know people who have had um, injuries. Chronic pain states hate their body because their body gives them pain. It hurts all the time. Uh, they've had amputations. They have paralysis. I have constant. I'm sure any physician in the room have patients who hate their body. Even though that's a quote from Scripture, Paul's using a metaphor, no one hates his own body. I have many patients who hate their own body. Do you not, do you not see that? So, and even Paul himself said, what a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death so some aspect of him wasn't liking the body he was in either (laughs) so why do people not like their bodies for those who don't why what's the common underlying theme of dislike for the body something's wrong with it it's not functioning like it was designed by god to function it's breaking down it's causing us problems isn't that why people don't like their body because something's wrong it's breaking down there's so much plastic surgery. Is that why there's so much plastic surgery? Partially, yes, because aging is a breaking down. God didn't design us to age. How do you think Adam and Eve, if they didn't sin, would look after 6,000 years? Like the day they were created. Like the day they were created. And in heaven, we will, we will all look probably like we're about 26. Maybe better than that, even. Yeah. So... When we think about relationships, because the metaphor is used to help us talk about the body of Christ. No one hates his body, but people hate the body when the body isn't working while it's breaking down. It's using the metaphor to not hate the the body of Christ. What about when the body of Christ is breaking down? We struggle with that. I I thought of that this week for some reason. (laughs) Are there elements in the church that sometimes don't function properly? People sometimes... I had a patient yesterday... Told, told that his, he's going to have to go on dialysis. His kidneys are no longer working, and he was a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, because uh, he's going to have to. He's going to do the home peritoneal dialysis, and it's all stressful and overwhelming to him. We were working on that issue, um, but his his kidneys are no longer functioning properly. It's breaking down. Are there elements sometimes in the church that don't function properly? Yeah, 
Should we hate our church or work to fix what's wrong? Yeah, when somebody has kidneys breaking down, should they just simply hate what's wrong or should they, if possible, fix what's wrong? Yeah, that should be our goal. To, and, how, and what are the methods of God to bring healing or fixture to the problem? What are his methods? Yeah. We are the church, so unless we change individually, the church won't change. Ah, I like it. Step number one, deal with your own self first. We can't help anyone else. One of the, one of the principles of running a psychiatric ward, what do you think the most important number one rule in a psychiatric ward is? First thing, before anything else, staff safety. Staff safety. Because if the staff aren't safe, what happens? And no one gets any care. See, we can't help someone else if we ourselves haven't been helped by Christ. So, number one is to deal with our own selves first, have our own hearts right with God, have His law written on our hearts and minds, and then we can become conduits, reflectors. As, As the Father sent me, so send I you. But we have to have him dwelling within us to do that. So I love that. Yes, we are the church. We have to change our own self, get our own heart attitudes right. And then what methods do we bear as we move forward? Present the truth in love and leave people free. Yes, that's what we do. Any questions in the lesson before we finish for today? So we'll close with this. Do relationships affect, have an impact on our emotional and physical health? You know, a healthy marriage, healthy marriage is an actual protection to both mental and physical illness. If you're in a healthy marriage, it gives you strength and resilience to handle the stressors of life and you have less illness. A dysfunctional marriage is the closest thing to hell on earth. I'm not kidding you. It is destructive. It destroys. I can't tell you the lives I've seen destroyed in my office because of the dysfunctional marriage at home. And what is it that helps a marriage be functional? What's the most important thing? The love of God living in the heart of the marriage partners. That's it. Because one of the rules for a healthy relationship, healthy relationships require healthy people. And so all too often, the unhealthy are looking to make the other person different so they can have a healthy relationship. And I tell them, if you're not healthy... It doesn't matter how healthy the person you're with is. If you go into a relationship and there's an unhealthy heart and mind and, and coping strategies and all this other stuff, you take you with you and the thing's going to be unhealthy. So the number one thing we can do is, with God's grace, work on our own hearts to become the healthiest person we can be and then take ourselves into those relationships practicing healthy principles. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly as Jesus revealed you to be. Lord, write your law of love on our hearts and minds. Give us patience with those who haven't yet come to appreciate the the depth and, and width of the love that you have for us. Give us the ability to be effective in communicating your love and truth to those who would oppose this message. And we pray that you will work behind the scenes with your agencies to open avenues of communication, to influence hearts and minds, to bring out the Nicodemuses and the Joseph of Arimatheas in our church that will stand up for you and, and help promote this message. We pray that uh, you will give us uh, a sense of peace and well-being to know that all the outcomes are in your hands and things are going to turn out just as the way you've designed them to be. We pray that that you will help our class find a a location to meet uh, that is stable uh, and that our class can be an influence to this community. And then our community can influence our world church that we can lighten the world and see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.